Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? So how, see how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. So we're going to start with a definition of politics. This is a Webster's Dictionary definition. The art or science concerned with the winning and holding control over a government. Good enough for now? Just put it out there. And we're going to see how Jesus fits into that definition or doesn't fit into it and ask the question, is Jesus political or how is Jesus political? And it's important to us who are his followers that we understand that because according to the scriptures that God's will for us is that we be conformed into the image of Christ. And so however Jesus approaches politics is how we would want to approach politics. And uh, do we need a new approach to politics? <laughs> yes, we do. Okay. So, uh, this next picture, I think I had this a couple of months ago, and it's just, it's so simple. Two lines, but it's, rather than thinking of the, the Jesus talking at, uh, on one level and the world talking on another, uh, sort of the spiritual and the, the real world we live in, uh, we see that this is the point that a few months ago we made, is that the kingdom of God intersects the kingdom of this world. And when it does, there's catalytic things that can happen. But they're not meant to be lived in parallel. They're meant to be in this chaos of connection. And that, that connection point right there is where we're going we're gonna to find the story today. Now, we may, we may live on a, a left to right. So left would be, you know, out here, you know what left means politically, and you know what right means politically. But Jesus is not on that spectrum. He, he's just not. And we have to think differently. Uh, it's uh, one thing that we can't say. To, this, this, I've seen it, and people will do something like this. They, not literally, but this is kind of what they're saying, is they kind of pat Jesus on the head and say, Jesus, you take care of the spiritual. We'll take care of the real world stuff. Oh, come on. That is not the way it works. And so uh, 2008, we had a, an election and a new president, and that new president came in with lots of new words of hope, and it was a new direction and all the rest. We had a young man in our church who was, his sister lived in Washington, D.C., and he wanted to go and be part of that hope revolution. And, uh, and I remember that, and I'm, I remember thinking, you know, okay, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, and he came back about 18 months later, and sure enough, he was disillusioned. Not with either political party, but with the whole system. 
Can anyone understand why he might be disillusioned with the whole system? And so I, I remember saying something to him like, you know, our hope is not found in the donkey or in the elephant, but in the lamb. And that's what we're talking about here. Is it is it really helps us to but what does it mean to follow the lamb it is not easy it is not this simple uh or simplistic anyway thing where you know that means this and that means it, it, it's really going to be tough to follow the lamb and we're going to look today at this episode these 15 verses which are kind of the quintessential of jesus being confronted by the government of his day, and how Rome really represents all governments, and to see where they intersect, and to see how much they differ, and to see how Jesus really is political, and yet he's not political in the way that we think he is, or would think anybody would be. It's a different way of coming at it. So that's where we're going this morning, and here's the two questions that uh, Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? We'll start there, and then what should I do with the king? He asked the crowd, we'll go there. Uh, and then how is Jesus political? We'll, we'll finish up there. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. Are you the king of the Jews? Verses 1 through 5. And um, it begins with, in verse 1, the statement that early in the morning, or very early in the morning, and we have to, that gives us a clue. Chronology is really important in the story. And we have to go back to last week. Do you remember the trial that was late at night? And Jesus was convicted of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders. And now he's going to be brought to uh, early in the morning to a, a different trial. But um, I won't go into too much of the, of the detail yet. And um, so early in the morning, they wanted to catch the pilot, who we'll talk, get to in a minute. They wanted to catch him before he got busy with other things. That was when they did their uh, cases. They handled their judicial cases first thing in the morning. And so the chief elders, very early in the morning, the chief elders with the priests, uh, the chief priests, I'm sorry, with the elders, the, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, so all of the Jewish governing uh, leaders in Jerusalem, and remember, uh, Jerusalem is under the thumb of Rome. They have they have their own government, but they're under Rome's uh, ultimate power. And you don't mess with with Rome. Okay, so uh, those guys, that group of seventy that we been we talked about last week, uh, they bring they reach a decision. That's a summary statement of what they accused Jesus of was blasphemy. Blasphemy is a religious charge that has to do with besmirching the name of God or, or becoming, saying that you're the same as God. I mean, it's, just, it's, un, it's unthinkable that somebody would say that. And they accused Jesus of, of being in that place of blasphemy. They, couldn't, they had two problems, though. They couldn't carry out capital punishment because only Rome could do that. Only Rome could, could kill someone for their crime. So Jews couldn't do it. But they, they had a crime worthy of death, but they couldn't carry it out. So they have to get Pilate, who's the governor over Judea, to do it for them. The problem is that if, if they were to come to Pilate and say he's, he's guilty of blasphemy, which is what they accused him of, Pilate would say, I don't care. I don't care about your religious squabbles. That's your stuff. Go away. It's not going to work with me. That's Pilate. So they... 
Instead, uh, they must have written it out because that's how it was done. They wrote out the charge of he, he claims to be the king of the Jews. Therefore, we're not talking about blasphemy. We're talking about treason. Ah, treason, Pilate says. Now you're talking my language. I understand what that word means. He's a threat to me and to the, and to the emperor. So uh, this is what is, is going on here. And it says, um, they handed him over. That's that phrase we're going to come back to. They handed him over to Pilate. Verse uh, 4. I want to give you a, a, a picture here of Jesus. And there's Jesus kind of dark here. And then Pilate, the governor. It's just meant to be art. This is by a Russian artist in the 19th century. Nicholas, Nicholas Guy is his name. But at least you get a sense of what it might have looked like. Um, And, I'm sorry, verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Are you the uh, the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate is not interested in theology. When the Jewish leaders were trying to figure out who Jesus was, he explained that he is the king. He said it very clearly. He says, I am. I am the Messiah. Messiah, king of the Jews. And, um, that was, a, that was a religious statement or a theological statement, but Pilate is interested in what? Politics. And it is, it's a political understanding that he has of the situation. And so his concern is, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to Rome? What, just think politically here. Are you a threat to my job? Are, are you going to change the status quo? Am I going to have to deal with a lot of problems if you're around me? That's the way he's thinking. And so, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? I want to know if you're that kind of a king. And Jesus could have said, you know, I am. You better watch out because I know, I know, I, can, I know where you live, you know. I know a lot about you. I know what you've done wrong and what you've done right. And uh, by the way, your hands are not clean. And so he could have taken that approach, and I will rock your world ultimately. He doesn't do that. Or he could have said, more like just go to play the spiritual line, uh, I, uh, Pilate, you know, I'm, I'm really just a spiritual guy. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to do with politics, uh, but however, if, you, if you're not busy Saturday night, I have a seminar that we're going to do on spirituality <laughs> for 10 bucks or whatever, right? And he, he doesn't do that. Now, to the Jews, he clearly said, I am the one. I am go- the one who is going to sit at the right hand of the Father, or the right hand of God, and I am the one who is going to come in the clouds. I am the Messiah. I am the King of the Jews. But what does he say here? It's, very, it's a very, very ambiguous thing that he says in, in response to a very clear yes or no question that is asked by Pilate. What does he say? You have said it. What? That's pretty darn ambiguous. So let's just assume in in your world that you have a teenager in your house and that they borrow your car for the evening, your son or daughter, and you notice that the next day there is a dent in the car. And you ask them very clearly, are you the one who put the dent in the car? And they say, you have said it. (laughs) 
You have said it. Just try that line at work. (laughs) When your boss asks you a question, you have said it. So it seems, you know, what we know about Jesus is he doesn't uh, just, he's careful with his words. I mean, we've seen how brilliant he can be. He's intentionally ambiguous. It's going to take us some digging here. If he had said yes or no to, to Pilate, Pilate would have had an easy decision to make, or easier decision to make, based on you know, what he knew. And he's got his advisors there. You know, but he's really the one who has to make the decision about what to do with Jesus. And Jesus says, you have said it. So we have to go uh, into a, a, deeper, a deeper place, and Pilate is going to go there as well. Um, intentional am, uh, ambiguity. Um, it, it really is at the heart of Jesus and the political question because I think you'll see that Jesus is, on the one hand, the most ultimately political person and he's the least political person. It's just so different. It's, it's politics, but it's done a whole different way. It has a whole different motivation behind it. It's not power that we're talking about, it's love. So let's just take some examples from his followers because sometimes it's easier to see things in the followers than it is in Jesus himself. And his life was 30 years, but uh, his followers have lived now for 2,000 years. And we have some examples. So this is a book that I would recommend by Rodney Stark uh, called The Rise of Christianity. How, and here's the, here's the subtitle. It's quite a subtitle. You can tell it's, it's written by a really smart person because they always have long subtitles. But How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. How's that for a subtitle? And that's what it's really about. Uh, Rodney Stark, this was written 20 years ago when Rodney Stark was at at the University of Washington. And he's now at Baylor University. He was a a social historian. And he's really looking at why the church grew so quickly in the first few centuries after Christ. So I'm going to give you four examples that come out of that history, out of this book and the history of that time. The first one has to do with uh, the the demographics of the Roman Empire. In the cities, the uh, average, uh, oftentimes, was 140 males to 100 females. And the reason for the difference was because they practiced something called infanticide. And they did so because girls were not valued as much as males. That's why there's the difference in population. Now that's sad. And uh, so oftentimes it was the father, when when it was a girl who was born, a baby girl, that would kill his daughter. That's, That's what we're talking, and it was legal. This is, this is Rome, and it was legal to do that. And the Christians would say, guess what? No, we're not doing that. It, it partly explains why Christianity grew so much. You just think of the, the way that works out as you have more girls and more you know, going on, and more kids, and, and it grew. But very sad, very, very sad. And maybe similar, because all this stuff... Christianity was such a radical uh, movement in favor of women that uh, it was okay for, uh, well, let me put it this way. Women were expected and required to be sexually pure within the marriage relationship, but husbands could have a mistress. What do you think of that? Everybody, not just, come on, what do you think of that? I want to hear men and women. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, guys, no good. But 
And that's what Christians said. We're not going to practice that anymore. We're going to live differently based on what we hear God saying to us. A different ethic. Okay, so how about uh, treating people who are sick? And he talks about in the book that there were many plagues, especially in the cities where things were not always clean, and these uh, plagues would spread, and uh, uh, maybe a quarter to a third of the population would die from a plague. And there was one really bad one in 165. And Christians would come in or be there and not leave, whereas the population in general tended to flee to the hills to get away from it, which is understandable. But Christians would stay behind. You know, Christians are really the first, they're associated with the birth of hospitals and hospice care and just caring for the sick. And this is where you see it. Before that, there really wasn't anything like this. But you had these people that were somehow motivated from the inside, not because somebody told them to do it, but motivated from the inside to put their lives at risk for the sake of another person. Now, why would they do that? Why would somebody who follows Jesus put their lives at stake for another person? Because Jesus Christ had come into their hearts. That's, what, that's the evidence of it. And many died. And, and not just died, but died with joy, having given their lives for another person. Radical stuff. And then there's this guy named Julian. He's got a terrible last name. He's called Julian the Apostate, but he was the last pagan emperor of Rome. And he's complaining as he's writing to his uh, pagan priest friends that the Christians are getting all of the credit for doing all of the good and can't you guys do something better as a pagan priest and here's the letters that part of the letters that we have the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests the christians observed this and they devoted themselves to philanthropy so the christians saw that they weren't being taken care of and then um, another letter he says they support that is the, the christians they support not only their own poor but ours as well and all men see that our people lack aid from us. Now, how are you going to... So he's, he's, he doesn't like Christians. This guy is you know, called the apostate for a reason. He doesn't like Christians, but he can't help observe that they're doing all this good stuff that we should be doing. <laughs> and why are they doing it and we're not? And the reason they're doing it and we're not is because they have Christ, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, they have the one living in them who gave himself for others, therefore they have the freedom to give themselves to others. There's an inner core motivation. Now, in, in these four examples, some of these tend to be more conservative. Some tend to, the first two are fairly conservative. They're about morality and life in the home and being, uh, you know, just having that, that, that strong sense of, of personal ethic, which conservatives tend to have. But the other two examples are more like a social conscience about the poor and the sick, and the liberals tend to have that. And all I'm saying, folks, is that intersection comes through and it cuts both ways. And there's no Jesus is liberal or Jesus is conservative. Jesus just is. He is the lamb who changes the world through love. You see? It's a different politics. All right. Um, we come now to the story of Barabbas and how things get uh, shaken up in his life. But... Um, Pilate asked the question, what, what do I do? Let's go back. Do I do, or his question to the crowd is, do, I, do we crucify this guy or this guy? So let's go back here a little bit. 
you can tell in the text that Pilate is beginning to suspect that maybe these Jewish leaders are out to get Jesus for reasons that maybe aren't clear to him yet, but you can kind of sniff that out sometimes when you realize that somebody's got an agenda. So you can tell he's getting more and more reluctant to crucify or hand Jesus over to be crucified. He's trying to get Jesus off the hook. Give him a little bit of credit, okay? It comes through in all the gospel stories that Pilate would prefer to not put Jesus to death. That would be his personal preference. But he's got these, these Jewish leaders who are determined to put Jesus to the death. And so in his mind, it seems like maybe simultaneously he's thinking, hmm, every year about this time during the Passover week, I, I've set one person free who's been uh, you know, in prison and maybe, or who's going to be condemned to death. And I'll, I'll do this. I'll put Jesus in that place. And in his mind, he thinks Jesus is the one who's going to be chosen, that, that they're going to set Jesus free. He wants that. So he chooses another guy who he thinks would be a a target for uh, somebody that wouldn't be uh, so respected or whatever. His name's Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And we don't know anything about Barabbas except that. That's his resume. So in the meantime, though, when Pilate is thinking this through, the, the Jewish leaders are gathering a group together. Now, it's, it's early in the morning, meaning some of these guys may have been up all night partying. We don't know. But it's hard to get a group together that represents the general population early in the morning. And they, know, they have a few cronies or buddies or whatever. And they get a crowd together, and they instruct the crowd to be on Barabbas' team, not on Jesus' team. So the, the deck is, is stacked against Jesus. And so when Pilate asks the question, whom shall we set free, Jesus or Barabbas, they all shout, you're the crowd, shout it. Yeah, okay, there you go. And that must have been a shock to Pilate. That was not what his plan was. And things oftentimes do get out of control, especially in crowds. And so... Um, uh, what should I do then, he asks, with the one that you call king of the Jews? And they shout. And then he says, why should I crucify him? And you say, even louder, crucify him. Do you see, it's, so there's, not, there's no due process there, really. It's just, uh, we want him crucified. That's it. Well, being a politician... Uh, he realizes that he's in a bad spot and you, you, he's thinking on his feet and trying to do the best thing he can, salvage the moment. He doesn't want to get dragged down with Jesus. So in verse 15, we have this statement, wanting to satisfy the crowd. And what politician hasn't wanted to satisfy the crowd? I mean, it's uh, what person, really? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged which means basically his back was ripped open with uh, leather, uh, stri- uh, leather strips with bones uh, tied into them, and it just shredded I mean, his back. Many, many died from it. He had him flogged, and here's that phrase again, handed over, or handed him over to be crucified. So, let's, let's just think a little bit more deeply here. How is Jesus political? In what way is Jesus political? How can we talk about Jesus and politics? And just to help us out a little bit, the art or science concerned with the winning and holding control over a government. How is Jesus about that? 
It seems like before we go there, we have to ask another question, or another question will help us answer that question. And it has to do with who killed Jesus. Let's look at the likely suspects. First of all, there's the Jewish leaders. They, I mean, obviously, they've... Uh, accused him of blasphemy, and they've handed him over to Pilate, who has the real power. So they are on the list of suspects, for sure. But they didn't actually carry it out. Pilate is the one who carried it out. And even though he didn't want to carry it out, he ultimately, for political expediency, he did give the orders to have Jesus crucified. So he's got blood on his hands, whether he wipes that blood off or not, which is in another gospel story, but, but he does uh, have blood on his hands. And then there's the theological reason that, who else killed Jesus? We did. So everybody who calls himself or is a human being would have that answer as well. That, in other words, it was our sins that put him on the, on the cross. So that, that's good biblical stuff. All of that stuff, are, those are all good answers. And what about Barabbas? Does he have any culpability here? Well, I don't know, but just think about Barabbas. Do you know how sometimes it's hard to, to get concepts into your head, like Jesus died for me? Do you think Barabbas had a, a more concrete understanding of Jesus dying for him than we might? He died for him, you know, literally. Barabbas was scheduled to go to the cross that day, and he got set free. And Jesus went in his place. I mean, that's, talk about saved, you know, right there. And think about Barabbas and how thankful he was. We don't know the story, but just what that would have been like the rest of his life. There's been a movie made about it. If you want to watch it, go ahead. But yeah, Barabbas. But there's a deeper reason, and this, I think this is the one that gets us into the answer that we're, we want to go for. So we've had this phrase in there. He was handed over. He was handed over by the, uh, the Jews to the Romans, you know, and, and oh, then to be crucified. And um, the Apostle Paul gives a, a different phrase when he talks about Jesus. He doesn't say he was handed over. He says he gave himself up for us. It's a whole different way of looking at it. And if you think of it from that angle, instead of he was handed over, but that he gave himself up, he was fulfilling prophecies that had been prophesied about him, he chose to do his Father's will, he gave himself up, that it was in God's will that Jesus be crucified, because God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever should believe it, you know the verse, right? Every football game, there it is, John 3.16. God gave his Son up for us, he gave himself up. Which means that the reason that Jesus is crucified fundamentally is that he loved us. It is love that put Jesus on a cross. It is love for you and he, for the Jews and the Romans and the, us and Barabbas. It is love that put Jesus on the cross. And that explains, that four-letter word, explains what politics is all about for Jesus. And what really changes the world is love. So are you ready to come to this table that is set for you? On the night when Jesus was betrayed, so this would have been, what, 12 hours earlier from these events, something like that, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body 
This is my body, which is broken for you. And after they had a meal together, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember me when you drink it. For whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.